the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, star pilots find you can't fly solo if your Wookiee don't whine. Cigar-chomping escaped orang-utans displace talking raven families as they stuff chimneys with purloined letters, telltale hearts, and defective mask of the Red Death with the back rubber bands broken. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of our roundtable discussion with the Bain author spouses. Hey, this talk was very entertaining and insight-filled. Included on the pod are Emily Butler, DJ Butler's wife, Bridget Correa, Larry Correa's wife, Dan Hoyt, Sarah Hoyt's husband, Maggie Nowakowska, Susan R. Matthews' wife, Mona Panette, Brendan Dubois' wife, and Sharon Rice Weber, David Weber's wife. Hey, it's a rousing finale to our roundtable. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's The Aiden Universe novel and Alliance of Equals. Now here's the news. Another June means new Bane hardcovers and mass markets hit bookshelter selves. Hooray! Out now is Grantville Gazette 8, edited by Eric Flint and Walt Boyes. Hey, the most popular alternate history series of all continues with another great collection of tales. When an inexplicable cosmic disturbance hurls your town from modern-day West Virginia back to 17th century Europe and into the middle of the Thirty Years' War, you'd better be adaptable to survive. And the natives of that time period, faced with American technology and politics, need to be equally adaptable themselves. Here is a generous helping of more stories of Grantville, the American town lost in time, and its impact on the people and societies of a tumultuous age. The setting has become a political, economic, social, and cultural puzzle, as supporting characters we meet in the novels get their own lives, loves, and life-changing stories. The future and democracy have arrived with a bang and historic explosion with a multitude of unforeseen consequences. Also new in June is The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF Volume 4, edited by David F. Sharirod. The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF series roars into its fourth year with more stories of daring do, military combat, and edge-of-your-seat suspense. This year's anthology has stories by David Weber, Larry Niven, Jody Lynn Nye, Brad Torgerson, Casey Izzell, and hey, me, yours truly, Tony Daniel. Thrilling tales of grand science fiction adventure and military action selected from the top print and digital markets. These stories are guaranteed to challenge, provoke, and entertain. Plus, you be the judge. Interactive reader voting is also included. One story from this anthology will be chosen via proctored online voting for the Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Reader's Choice Award presented at DragonCon over Labor Day 2018. For more information on that, go to Bain.com, and we'll talk about it more here on the podcast later in June, of course. The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, Volume 4, edited by David F. Sharirod, and Grantville Gazette 8, edited by Eric Flint and Walt Boyes. June is a Bane short fiction lollapalooza and cornucopia, and you should go and get some at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part roundtable. Part one is available on last week's podcast. want to welcome a bunch of author spouses to the Bain podcast. Hello, folks. How are Hello. you? Hello. Well, we've done a spouse roundtable a couple of years ago, and it went over great. So we thought we'd do it again. Um, and we have with us this time some veterans and also some some newbies to the podcast. We have, first of all, we have Emily Butler. 
who is Dave Butler's wife. Uh, DJ Butler is his uh, is his writing name. And we have Bridget Correa, who is Larry Correa's wife. We have Dan Hoyt, who is Sarah A. Hoyt's husband. Of course, I mean, everybody here uh, also has other credits, but th- this is the, the main credit that we're talking about tonight. <laughs> so we have uh, Maggie Nowakowska, who is Susan R. Matthews' wife. We have Mona Pinnett. Is it Mona Pinnett or Mona Pinnett, Mona? Neither. Pinnett. 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 Yeah, think Brenda about Dubois. Jeanette and Yvette. Same kind of thing. Uh, she is Brendan Dubois' wife. And we have Sharon Rice Weber, who is David Weber's wife. And uh, welcome, welcome, welcome all. Maybe, Sharon, you could jump in on this first. Um, The relationship that you have with your spouse's readers, which which can be good and, I suppose, bad at times, um, and how do you handle that, and what... What what's it like to have this person who is so connected to your spouse's work um, approach him and and how, you know you know what I'm asking? Sure. Um, well, he has the fan club. It's the the Royal Manticore Navy, which is uh, ten years old now, and they are very protective of David. They do they don't want they don't want to overwhelm us. They are very protective at cons that. You know, we get the the time away that we need sometimes because at a con, you're always on. You know, the second you walk out the door, there's somebody looking, there's somebody watching, there's somebody wanting to talk to David. And David, kind of like Larry, you know, he's a, he's a big guy. He's like 6'3", or at least he was. He's kind of shrinking a little bit now. but And he's just a big kind of overwhelming presence. And, you know, I'm five foot you know, maybe one now after the surgeries, and I'm not so overwhelming. And people will come and ask me questions, you know, that they want to ask David, but they're just too afraid to or too intimidated by him. And a lot of times I'll go, oh, you know, well, I don't know. Let's ask David. And so once David, David will talk to anybody about anything, and he will talk forever. So, you know, once I get a person talking to David, then I just kind of slip out of the equation and and let them, you know, have their fanboy moment or whatever uh, with him. And that's always kind of fun because they stop being intimidated and they start actually talking and relating to him. And he likes to talk to his fans. But there are times when you just have to go, you know, all right, that's it. You know, I'm sorry. He's got to go to eat dinner. He's got to go to bed. You know, he's got to rest. Um, and you've got to kind of peel him out of the situation. And sometimes he doesn't like that, you know, as well as the fans. They really like to hear him talk. So we've had that. It could be the bad cop sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. And, and, you know, people at cons kind of, you know, they're like, okay, David's going over on his panel. Can you go in and stop him? And I'm like, yeah. But there are other times when I have to go, all right, you know, it's, Two o'clock in the morning, he's got a ten o'clock panel. He's got to get some rest. He's got to get some sleep. And so then I play bad cop then too, you know. So, but he loves to interact with his fans. And you know, we found okay. We went we went to um, a soccer tournament. Our, our girls' uh, varsity soccer team got into um, state the state level uh, soccer playoffs this year. So we drove down to Myrtle Beach. The girls uh, have to ride back on the on the varsity bus, you know, the school bus back to the school. So it's just, you know, the two of us. We stopped at random Ruby Tuesdays. So we pull one up on, you know, our apps. We're talking about a five, almost six-hour drive. We stop at a random Ruby Tuesdays, and the guy who's waiting on us is the bosun on one of the ships <laughs> that's in the fan club. And he recognized David, and he's like, oh, my gosh, it's you, you know. And we're like, totally random, you know. So um, we kind of, you know, we kind of find that that a little odd that he's recognized. And uh, people will come up and say, I know who you are. And we're like, okay. So, But he's easy to spot being such a big guy. So that's always fun. Yeah. Well, does anybody else want to answer this a little bit? Um, how have you uh, 
How have you dealt with um, with with people uh, with with readers and fans, which are not always the same thing? A relationship to your spouse's uh, uh, work and their presence. I, I do have one more thing, though, Tony. I am very jealous of Honor. I am really jealous of Honor. She, she spends way more time with my husband than I do. So there, there are times when I, oh, <laughs> I really hate her. So. Dear Lord, that must be tough. There's nothing you can do oh, about no. that one. Nope. <laughs> well, we've, we've had some very odd experiences because Sarah's fans are odd. But... Um, <laughs> And they, they crop up in places I wasn't expecting. We've had no less than, when we were living in uh, downtown Springs, we had no less than three service people that came out to the house, took one look at the covers that we had put up in the foyer and said, oh, I read those books. And then I would introduce them <laughs> to Sarah and we'd usually give them a book and sign it and, and go on. We were at the house for seven years before one of my neighbors directly across the street walked over to me while I was out. I mean, we didn't really see much. This is a a fairly urban area. We didn't see the neighbors a whole lot. But uh, one of the times I was out, she came over and said, hey, your wife writes the um, Musketeer Mysteries, right? Could you get those signed for me? And I'd been living next to her for seven years. We had no idea that she read her. Um, so sometimes they come out of the out of the woodwork. We started recently. Um, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I think it was Misty Lackey that said she did breakfast. Uh, Bujol, sorry, who said she did breakfast or uh, uh, with her fans at conferences. And when we started getting people who were flying in from other countries just to meet Sarah at a conference, we decided it was maybe time to start doing some, that sort of thing. Um, so we started doing a, a fan breakfast at uh, Liberty Con a few years ago, and then we started getting people complaining that they were living in the West Coast and they didn't go out to uh, to Tennessee very often. So what about them? Um, so we started doing a, a monthly get-together at uh, Pete's Kitchen, where the diner that was the inspiration for Sarah's Shifter series up in Denver, we do that about um, generally once a month, although we've missed a few periodically depending upon what the con schedules are. So, uh, but we've actually become very good friends with a lot of her fans. I say that um, her fans put the uh, fanatic back in fan, and yes, I do mean it that way. They would, uh, I they would kill for Peter for her, I swear. <laughs> and uh, and sometimes they, uh, you know, if if they're if they want something, if if they they want to to get more access to her, they'll tell her. It's they'll they'll be straight up, you know. It's like, hey, when are you going to come to a con in Utah? So we went to a con in Utah last year, <laughs> um, yeah. or this past year. So, it, um, so Bridget. Um, now I know that Larry's got some some extreme fans, um, and he's yeah. got some readers, and he's got some extreme fans um, who are who are lifetime committed to this idea <laughs> yeah. of monster hunting and such. Um, how how has that played out? And, and you know, it's really cool that there are people who are that committed to his his story, this world that he's created. And I think it just is a test to his ability as a storyteller that he's made it so real for them and something that they want to be a part of. As his wife, this the practical aspect of it, it gets a little, like there are moments where you can see how it could be scary for like our children, for example. So I've tried really hard to keep a barrier between what dad does for work and my kids, just until they're old enough to make up their own minds about how involved they want to be. But in in general, it's been a really positive thing. Um, it is strange, though, when someone, like where Sharon had someone recognize them at a restaurant. Larry and I were out to dinner one night, and someone came up and was like, oh, are you Larry Korea? Let me shake your hand. Let me, let me get you a dessert or whatever. 
that that's a little because we're living our normal everyday life. We're just being yeah. boring and going out on a date night, and suddenly it's this weird world colliding moment. Or um, one moment that sticks out when I was pregnant with Moose, our youngest kid. Um, Moose is not his real name, by the way. I would never do that to a child. <laughs> we were scheduling the sonogram to to find out what he was and make sure everything was fine. And we went up to the desk to, to talk to the person that was the scheduler. And they looked up and they said, I'm reading a blog right now and turned the computer screen around. And there was Larry's Monster Hunter blog. And like, you know, like that was weird because I'm just like, okay, we got to figure out the schedule. And come on, I'm the one that's pregnant. It's supposed to be about me. <laughs> And suddenly there's this person freaking out because Larry Correa is in the office and, oh, man, I don't have any of your books here for you to sign. So, I mean, it's fun and it's cool, and I'm not going to lie. Fans are, are really great, and they they can uh, provide some really unique opportunities that normally we wouldn't be able to uh, participate in. But it, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, and then you try and talk to your normal everyday friends about it, and they think that you're making stuff up or that, like, oh, hoity-toity, don't you think you're special? Well, no, actually, I don't. This is just part of my life that some random guy thought that Larry's book is so cool that they want to get a tattoo. I mean, like that's yeah. for a normal person that that's not the world, it's, it's kind of weird, right? Right, guys? Help me out. Yeah. It's not that weird. Well, I, I'm really resentful that you said that about my Monster Hunter tattoo. But anyway, go on. <laughs> you got a Monster Hunter tattoo? I didn't know that. I do not have a Monster Hunter tattoo. No. Oh, okay. I mean, it's cool. But he does well, have it on cool, But it's also, how do you explain right. that to your neighbor? You know, like, hey, check this out. This I got a tattoo of my husband's book. Because they don't necessarily care that their neighbor is a writer. You know, like, oh, that weird. Bridget, I've got a story for you. We had a refrigerator delivered, um, and the guy who delivered it, so he knew our home. You know, he'd been in our home. He delivered the refrigerator. And then right before he left, he's like, can can I get you to sign, like, 30 books of David's? And I'm like, he knows where I live. He knows, you know, the the dogs are in, you know, our house and everything. And that was a little, you know, a little... A little disconcerting, I have to say. That it's a bit much. Yeah. So. But, but you, you know, it's the same thing, it. though. Gotta... They're having their fanboy moment. Yeah. You know, and if it were me and, you know, I don't know, Keanu Reeves was next to me in line to get an ice cream cone, <laughs> I'd be geeking out and wanting to. Yeah. So I get that. I totally get it. And I'm, I'm so Excited that there are people who are really excited about what he does and the world he's created, and I, I want to respect that. But it's—I can see it. It's—it can get a little disconcerting. Is a good word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it uh, came up through fandom, and oh, go um, ahead. Who's talking now? Uh, this is Maggie. I'm sorry, Maggie. Go ahead. Are you yeah. talking about dealing with fans? I can't, we came up through fandom, so we're both very familiar with the phenomenon. And so it didn't surprise us. And our neighbors, uh, we have a number of writers in the neighborhood. So we've been very lucky in the people around us and such. If we face his and write science fiction, well, oh, really? Great. Give me the name of the book, and they look it up on their uh, machine, you know, on their on their phone. So um, Susan's fans tend to be very intense, but they want to talk. They want to talk about the ideas a great deal. They're very intense in a in a very verbal way. Well, and, um, I would I would like to ask you something, Maggie, which is that yes. Susan's main character in most of her work is a torturer. Yes. And do you have you had any fans who were who didn't understand that 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 Andre uh, <laughs> got forced into this and that it wasn't his life choice? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting when people ask me what her books are about. And basically, I say good and evil. And if they want to hear more <laughs> after that, I'm willing to talk about it. But um, we we generally people say, "Oh, I'll buy I'll buy your books for my kids." And we said, "Maybe not." We say, "Let's talk about what the books are about. What? How old are your kids to begin with?" 
Uh, if they're in their yes twenties, it might be a good good idea. Yes, yes, <laughs> and uh, and such. And we do basically talk about it. It's it's not um, it's space opera in that you have the you know the jurisdiction universe and space, and you have the politics, and you have rocket ships and such, but a lot of, it's a very idea-driven universe, and once you get people talking about that, they get all caught up in the idea, just like Susan's fans get caught up in the idea, and she's worked, I think, very hard to make it clear in her books that this is, this is not to be titillating, that she's talking. She's talking about it. She wants the reader to know that this is serious. And well, it's I, a totalitarian world that that our main character Andre is fighting against, and he yes. just has been thrown into this this occupation. But he's necessarily involved in it. So, I just imagine it, there might be some that that took took it the wrong way. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, I have not encountered them. Generally, I am a gopher at a con. Go for coffee. Hold the purse. Here, hold this while I sign this. And I haven't talked to the fans too much, and possibly it is because I've known the story since 1979. And I've been living with the the characters in the universe a long time. At the very beginning, at, at one point, I sat Susan down and I said, look, I don't think your characters would like me very much. And I think that I would probably be on the side of the people that they were, that they in general didn't like very much and wanted to discipline. So I've got this working through my mind as a reader of her work, because I've been reading it since 79. And that was a very interesting experience for me, because I, being a fan, I'm used to getting involved with characters of what I'm reading. I always did. I write. And having somebody who's writing about somebody who I think would probably shoot first and not ask questions later, you know, the the military aspect in her universe, um, was difficult for me to get over with. So I can understand and be sympathetic with some of the fans who who are readers who have um, an initial reaction. My God, this is difficult. I tend to tell them, look, when you get to the most difficult part, that's the worst it gets, and then keep reading. And some people can, and some people can't. But you would have to ask Susan directly about the fans, because I generally have stayed away. We're familiar with how intense fans can come with from our own experience in fandom. We're not surprised by it. We don't have children to protect about it. And some people just, they can't deal with it, and all you can do is say, well, thank you, and change the subject. Well, my reaction upon first reading Susan's books was, holy crap, this stuff is good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Which is the other side of the coin. Well, let me me ask Mona, um, since Brendan has won Jeopardy and won that that other game show, The Chase, (laughs) people probably recognize him, like, from TV, right? Yes, people do recognize him from TV. People will come up to him, and but I always remember one of the formative things that happened in Brendan's life. Um, when he was 17 years old, he went to Boscone, and he his his parents actually took him to Boston for the weekend because he really wanted to go, and he he met David Gerald there. And the two of them were having a lovely conversation. And David said, "Um, I'm meeting a friend for dinner. Would you like to come join us? And so Brendan at 17 found himself at dinner with David Gerald and Larry Niven. And he will tell you that that was a really incredible experience for him. Um. He was 17 years old, and the two of them treated him like he was a peer. And it meant so much to him. And I realized that that's going to happen every so often with people who come come up 
and, you know, want to either speak to him or whatever, that he might be able to touch them in the same way. And so I guess I always remember how much of an impact that had on him, and I try to kind of give it some space. But if it gets weird, I will also step in. Um, Phone will ring on occasion, and it's, you know, it's not somebody we know, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, I've just finished reading. We got a phone call one night. I just finished reading his book. It was like 1030 at night. I had no idea who this woman was. I just finished reading his book, and I just really enjoyed it and had to give you a call. And I said, you know it's 1030, right? She said, oh, yeah. Is this inconvenient? I said, yes, I'm sorry it is. (laughs) No. So, you know, occasionally you do have to pull them back, but that was a really formative experience for Brendan, and I kind of sit back and think we should give the chance to somebody else, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, one of my formative experiences was, was standing in a hotel room with A.E. Van Vocht and, while he brushed his teeth at a convention <laughs> and told me about a dream he had. So, <laughs> you appreciate it when writers will do that for you. Um, Emily, um, maybe I could, you know, David is going out, David's going out now and really hitting it with bookstores and such. Um you know, this is that sort of driving. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this book go over. Um, not the beginning because he's had other books. Uh, has that caused any? Uh, have you, have you had to help with that? Push, keep him, keep him on, on target, or anything like that? Um, yeah, you know, Dave's got he's just super determined and focused, and uh, he needs no help in that area from me. I feel like. Um, if there is any tension at all, it's just that uh, he's he's away an awful lot because, again, he's got a day job. So I am, in a sense, sort of been single momming it for a while. But we made this decision, and and uh, I can I can honestly say if if Dave does not become you know a full time, really widely recognized author at some point, it's not because he failed to do something. He's just doing everything he can. So. I'm not, we've never had a conversation in which we said, you know, if by such and such a date, um, you know, it hasn't happened, whatever it is, then we're going to, we just need to stop. Um, I, and I'm not sure when one has that conversation. So far we're doing okay. But no, I don't have, I've never had to give Dave a kick in the pants. Yeah, he, nope. he's crazy. He's crazy. I just spent, he, he, um... Thank you uh, for saying several that. Several days with him. I didn't want to be the one to say it, so I'm glad you were the one to say it up. The man is insane. Yeah, he, he's he's wonderful with fans um, and and with yeah, people that want to read his he book. He loves fans. It's not. We have not had um, anything inappropriate or too intense yet. So, and uh, but I like Bridget. I kind of um, keep my eye on the kids, make sure that there is a lot of space between what Dave does. And them, uh, just because they're still quite young. Yeah. yeah. So, what is um, what what is the weirdest quirk? What is the most endearing writerly quirk? Maybe Emily, we can stay with you. And what is the most annoying of your spouse? And and maybe what what bugs them about you? If you want to have something to to, <laughs> to balance it with. Uh, yeah, what is the most endearing thing about Dave as a writer? This is people who know Dave will understand how connected this is to his writing. But I cannot remember the last time I saw Dave drink H two O. He does not drink water. He only drinks um, Diet Mountain Dew because he's kind of he's always on some. You know, he knows exactly where he is on his caffeine parabola, and. Um, is caffeinated at almost all times, and oftentimes the last time, the last thing I'll hear at night is like the pop of another can. And of course, I grew up in a household where soda was kind of verboten, so this is both endearing and also appalling to me, and weirdly connected to his writing. So, Diet Mountain Dew—it's the most disgusting beverage imaginable, <laughs> and he drinks it nonstop. There. But it's 
such a nice color. Um, right? <laughs> I don't know what, what you would call it. Acid E? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I worked for Pepsi for five years, and I can tell you what color we said it was. <laughs> and you can just imagine. Yeah. I, I don't know how he's alive, but he's doing fine, and he has all his teeth and his bones, so I know. Mm. He has all his skin. He should be dead, but he's gone. <laughs> So the the witchy eye uh, witchy war books are are Diet Mountain Dew fueled. We will we we know now. Uh, saturated. Saturated. Like <laughs> right. Maybe you've got your color uh, scheme else? for the next what cover. Are some anybody else want to I, jump in it, on this? In endearing with Brendan is um, every so often something will happen and he'll come downstairs and he'll give me this little smile and he'll say. I killed somebody this morning. I wasn't even thinking on it. <laughs> and it, I always think that that's just, that's, it's really funny. And I remember his mother saying to me at one point, doesn't he scare you? And I said, no, no, he gets it all out in his imagination in fiction. It's okay. Um, so far. So far, right? <laughs> I'd say the the thing that's, the thing that's most frustrating about his writing, and so this is the secret, um, he has a tendency to change characters' names. And so there'll be a character, and will have named it, he will have named her Denise. And I'm reading along, and I'm reading along, and all of a sudden, Melissa shows up. And I'm thinking, <laughs> who's Melissa? And sure enough, it's like... Wait a minute, didn't you just call her? Oh, yeah, right. So I don't know how this happens, but in every book, this happens. It's like, <laughs> how is it you can't keep the name straight? <laughs> That's the, the little frustration piece. <laughs> I've got a frustration. Susan writes all her books in fountain pen longhand. Oh. Everything. Oh, wow. And that means she can write anywhere she wants to, and that's very frustrating to somebody who really needs a typewriter or you know, a keyboard of some sort, whether it was typewriters before and a computer now. I need to, when I'm working on a project, I need to disappear into the project. Susan can sit down, whip out that book, take her fountain pen, and write. Um, oftentimes she does it, on, she writes on the bed. Not on the bed, but she's sitting there. And I come in, and I would like to go to bed. <laughs> but Susan's writing there on the bed all the time, and I think that's for me, is the most annoying is that she can pick it up and sit down and write wherever she is, and I can't. It's very frustrating, and she takes over the bedroom. Uh, <laughs> and we don't have, we have a small house. <laughs> We don't have an outhouse out yet or a room for one. And every once in a while I say, where'd my bedroom go to? I want my bedroom. Where's my bedroom? Well, that's where she feels most comfortable then, probably. Yes. Well, yeah, because she can sit and write with the pens. It's not the Mm -hmm. same when you haul a computer into bed. (laughs) No. And she probably is annoyed by asking her if she wants some tea. I would say that Larry's thing is that he's so gleefully enthusiastic about everything he does. And to me, that's really (laughs) cute. Because he reminds me so often of a giant Labrador puppy, just all big and joyful. And it's it's kind of one of those double-edged sword things where it's really cute and it's really fun until it's time to, like, it's grown-up time, you know. We got to be grown-ups. You can't be the puppy knocking everything over with your enthusiasm. And I know that it it kind of annoys him that I'm not that way. That I'm more cautious and that I'm more. I like to think things through and come up with what's the worst-case scenario and can I live with that before I go ahead and I make the choices. But he's just like gleefully enthusiastic about everything, you know. It's not just his writing. It's like 
look at how awesome this lawnmower is. Check it out. Or look at how amazing this this chocolate sauce is. It's the best. And, you know, it's, it's cute. I like it. It it brings a lot of joy to our, our family life. But you can see how it could go awry, especially when he's six foot five, you know. <laughs> and when you, he's the person doing it or she's the person doing it, you can't. Even if you are yeah, someone's gotta involved, be the because up. somebody's got to stay the stable one and say it's right? time to leave. Can you imagine? If you have two Labradors, the place would be pretty messy, I guess. Yes. Uh, I have a yes. question. Does, does anybody else's spouse just lose time randomly? David will periodically, it's like, today's Tuesday, right? No, it's Saturday, dear. You know, I mean, you know, he, he's actually misidentified the month before because he's just so into that writing world that he comes out and he's like, you know, he doesn't realize the real world has passed him by stuck in, oh, in, in his writing world. Oh, Larry does that all the time. All the time. He's like, yeah, what are the kids doing home? I'm like, it's Saturday. What? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so it's not David. I feel better. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just curious, does, does David forget entire conversations? I swear, his, Larry's brain is going off in his his world that he's, you know, he's imagining a great scene or whatever. And we'll talk about logistics. Like, okay, this is what's happening oh, yeah. on Tuesday and this has to happen. And then so Tuesday runs around and I'm like, okay, this is what we're doing today. And he looks at me like, what are you like talking crazy. about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have never had yeah. this conversation. I'm like, yes, actually we have. Yeah. We've yeah, had we it have. times now. For a long time before we went to the electronic calendar on our phones, I would take pictures of the next day's calendars entry, you know, with all the kids' stuff and my stuff and, you know, maybe his doctor's appointments or something, and I would text it to him, like, the last thing at night before I'd go to bed because he's I up writing. Like you're thinking because then there's a paper yeah, trail. Because, because, yeah, he could, do, he could, he could go back. And it was dated and everything, so, you know, he's like, okay, I know I have to do this, you know. See, and, and the electronic we get when we get together. Yeah. Um, David David has done that. It's like, don't forget you need to take, you know, this this needs to happen today. And he's like, we never talked about that. And I'm like, yeah, here's, here's the text conversation where I told you that we had to do it. And he's like, oh, I yeah, love it. okay, now I remember, you know. He's actually called me his, his, uh, his extra rememberer, his, his his side brain, and his calendar keeper because he just, he um, he has trouble sometimes keeping that, uh, keeping reality straight. It's, he's, he's so meticulous well, it's always in his writing surprising to me because, well, well, and it's surprising to me because Larry is so, like, he is just, focused and on top of everything and he's got all of these details that he can recall at the snap of his fingers and yet but he can't find his conversations. Thoughts, right? yeah. yeah these yeah. entire conversations that we have that are important and he's completely blanked them out it's, it's gone yeah yeah i have that with david we can okay. hear notes on that one so yeah oh yeah good to hear right it's on like, yep it's it's not just uh not just larry not just not just david it's Thing, well, it sounds like so. it's a it's a side effect of living in two worlds at the same time that that the spouses yeah. are, are. Sometimes he's more in that world than he is in this world. But that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know about yeah. Larry or, or how Sarah or anybody else works, but David has just reams of, you know, of intricate detail about what's going on in the safehold world or you know honorverse or whatever, and. You know, it's it's like just reams and reams and reams of paper that he goes back and he's like constantly updating the character list. And so he doesn't call Melissa Janet or whatever. You know, in in the book, he he's he's just got it. You know, list oh, and list and probably list and got list. an extra million words on files oh, yeah. somewhere about all oh, his characters and where, and where they were and the timeline and where they, where they live and they yeah. So and, he probably and has he genealogy keep... sheets for these guys going back four oh, generations yeah. so he can refer back to it. David does. 
and the ages and you know who's got this and it the the minutia that he can keep straight in his writing is just amazing but then he can't find his socks when he comes to the house you know it's like David, they're in your sock drawer. They've been there for 20 years. We've been married. They're in the same place. <laughs> oh, uh, and where would my sock drawer be again? Okay, uh, here, dear, here's the chest of drawers. It's this one, you know. But, I mean, it, it, it just amazes me sometimes. I don't know. He lost a pair it. of socks. He, w- he lost a pair of socks from the top of the staircase to the bottom of the staircase. And I'm like, I don't know how you did that, you know, because he got they a phone call halfway down. Yeah. Well, they were... Laid them down at the bottom of the stairs and totally lost them, and then couldn't find them again after he had his phone call. But I mean, literally, it's just it's it's amazing. Sometimes he is he is so meticulous, and then can't find his socks. So. Well, this is um, I know a lot of writers, of course, uh, and every one of them, uh, it one one could say, what would they do without their spouse? Thank God for for that. So. <laughs> At least they're only losing things. Sarah loses herself a lot. Um, the very first um, Bane dinner, I think, that we went to with, uh, that was with David Drake. David went off to the restroom, and Sarah went off to the restroom alone. Usually I take her there because I want to make sure that she can find her way back, even if it's 20 feet away. Oh, and no. after about 20 minutes, somebody noticed that neither one of them had come back. And they were starting to get a little concerned. And I looked over and I said, well, there was a bar in between us and the restrooms and people were dancing there. So my guess is that they're dancing there waiting for us to come and get them. And they were. <laughs> <laughs> this was about 20 minutes before we did, but, but, that, but that's what happened. They had no clue where to find us. And we were maybe 40 feet away from them at the time. And loud, I'm, I might add. So there were a lot of Bane people there, you know, and you know how loud Bane fans are and writers. So that would be her probably most annoying tendency. We moved into our current house. She went for a walk with my son, and I got a call half an hour later because they were lost. They were about a half mile away. I had to go get drive out to them and pick them off. But her endearing quality, though, the most endearing quality is she writes supernaturally fast. As in, at one point, an editor hey, I need a story in two hours, and she turned in an 11,000-word story two hours later. She wrote hmm. a novel, um, Plain Jane, which was a historical of one of the wives of Henry VIII, Jane Seymour. She wrote that in three days. It was 80,000 words. And it has uh, continually been one of those that's, uh, that keeps making royalties <laughs> for us as well. So, I mean, she writes really fast and writes final draft quality, first draft. Kind of annoying sometimes, but... Yeah. Well, that's pretty endearing we had to a... editors as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> We we had a we did a workshop together out in uh, Oregon, and we had to do a ten thousand word story. Uh, I write about a thousand words uh, an hour, so I'm not that fast. And they gave us something like I don't know two or three days to do this. But the first day, uh, we got these assignments in the morning, and the first day we got up to lunchtime, and I said, "Hey, can we go take a walk and talk about the story?" So we did that. And at the toward the end of the story or of the walk, I asked her, "Well, do we need to talk about your story?" And she said, "No, I've pretty much got that in hand." Okay. <laughs> so then, the next two days went by, and everybody was complaining that Sarah was out reading in the um, in the common room instead of working on her story, and they were surprised. You know, it's like, "Well, don't you have a good idea yet?" I mean, it's you're getting up to the deadline, and she just looks at him. It's like. I finished the story two days ago. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's what the, the those that are the naturals can do. Uh, well, um, you know, we're going to have to close it down because I think I run out of reserve time in a minute. <laughs> but, um, it's wonderful to uh, to to hear. It. If there's any if there's any one 
weird thing that is writerly or not writerly? Maybe like a word or a sentence that we could close with. Could I just poll everyone that you would say about your spouse, perhaps? Something that is the one weird thing, that's the weirdest thing that you know, that is the most interesting thing, perhaps, about them. And it could be, a, you know, a beautiful love thing, or it could just be something freaking weird. And, and just one thing, maybe, to uh, to close this out with a final word about about your relationship and, and this weird, strange writer person that you've hooked up with. Emily, could we, I, I hate to put you on the spot instantly, but uh, uh-huh. can we start with you? Well, I don't want to be inappropriate here, but Dave really loves his books and he touches them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I will often walk into one of our rooms and he's just kind of stroking his books. So there you go. I can be Hope a touch that emotion. Embarrassed anybody? <laughs> he's very close to his books. Uh huh. <laughs> Bridget, how about you? Things. Oh, go ahead, Bridget. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, finish. Please. Well, I don't know I, 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 about that. Sorry, I can't should have talk. gone there, but it's true. <laughs> um, well, Larry paints, paints weird miniatures, that's for sure. Well, he's pretty good at it, though. Yeah. He's a prize. Yeah, very, uh, very good. Anything. Yeah. So, pretty adorable. you know, it, you should just see him get so excited about color schemes now. I never in a million years would have thought that my husband, the gun enthusiast, would talk to me about Various shades of mauve. <laughs> mauve. Uh, Dan, what about you? I love them a lot. No genre is safe. <laughs> no genre is that's safe. That's kind of a credo. Yeah, that's uh, kind of her credo. She she has written pretty much every genre except for, well, men's adventure and porn, and maybe children's books. But I'm not betting that she won't. <laughs> Hopefully not porn in children's books. <laughs> Wait a minute. We could start a line. Uh, Maggie, how about uh, how about Susan? One, one thing that's just lovable. Susan, Susan gets totally into something, like I said at the very beginning, like about U-boats. Uh, we have bookcases. I know uh, glaciers because she wrote a book about people who lived around mountains and glaciers. And the thing that's great about it is with her enthusiasm, that means I can just slide my enthusiasms right beyond, you know, and ride the coattail as it goes Uh in. I don't have to worry about explaining my enthusiasms to somebody else because she understands it because she's got massive enthusiasms herself. And so I I build bookcases for her and she fills them up. And she listens to me go on and on and on and on about my interests because it's the concept of having an obsessive interest is what's mutual. So it's just wonderful that we can get all these wonderful books on business expenses uh, for research. And I don't have to worry about explaining myself. I can come home and know that she'll understand and probably um, say, okay, that's enough of that. And then I get to say, okay, it's enough of that. And we get along that way. Very cool, very cool. Uh, Mona, how about you? I'd say one of the things that that, – Brendan's just got a really big heart. And when he's not writing, he's he's looking out for somebody, whether it's his parents that are 91 or he he has five brothers. And so we've got lots of nieces and nephews. He's always looking out for somebody, and to me, that was that's just one of his real endearing qualities. Yeah, I can attest to his 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 huge heart. And Sharon, can you close us out with a thought of uh, about David and and your twenty years together, et cetera? Well, he's he's very dedicated and he's very responsible, which I think is really cool. But when he gets his interest involved before the kids started playing soccer we didn't you know, neither one of us knew anything about soccer and now he's writing it into you know his books that about soccer teams and stuff so he's he's he, he loves to learn he loves to keep uh keep that brain of his fueled on all kinds of you know politics and histories and learning about dirigibles and how much the lift gases would be and 
And it's just amazing sometimes to watch that brain in action. So I think that was that was endearing to me is, is just his love for learning. And wonderful. Well, I want to thank you all. I want to thank Emily Butler, DJ Butler's wife. DJ Butler's book is newest book is Witchy Winter. Uh, Bridget Korea, Larry Korea's wife. Uh, Larry's books are, are so numerous that um, it's hard to think about Siege. Monster Hunter Siege was uh, the last Monster Hunter book. Dan Hoyt, uh, Uncharted is out right now by Sarah A. Hoyt and Kevin J. Anderson, which is a wonderful, wonderful book about uh, a magic Lewis and Clark adventure. Maggie Nowakowska, who is um, Susan R. Matthews' wife, and Susan's book, she just turned turned in Crimes Against Humanities, which is the new under-jurisdiction book that will be out next year, and it's wonderful. And the entire under-jurisdiction series is is now out from Bain in omnibus form as well, and it's great stuff. Mona Pinnett, who is Brendan Dubois' wife, Brendan's Black Triumph will uh, be out soon, and it is the third book in this in this great. Um, I don't know, it's Red Vengeance. No, what's the name of the series? Uh, Dark um, Victory series. Yes, there we go. Right. Uh, excellent Alien Invasion of Earth series, and Sharon Rice Weber, David Weber's wife, uncompromising honor, the new Honor Harrington uh, giant tome, incredible adventure, will be out in October as well. Spouses, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing with us on the podcast. Thank, thank you, you very much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was part two of a two-part roundtable discussion. Part one is available on last week's podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Sean's breath went short. Horror filled him. Healer sight showed him the black threads moving, manipulating, compelling. The sense of those manipulating energies was beyond him, but he could glimpse Vanner's emotive grid in gaps left by the encroaching threads. And what he saw was terror and despair. He tried to enclose the threads. He could not touch them. And Vanner's hand still rose inexorably, turning now, and the muzzle sought its nest under the square chin. Sean took a breath and thrust his will through one of the gaps in the threads, snatching at the place where Vanner's pattern was light and lit with joy. Memories, those were, happy memories, and threw them before the unseeing eyes. The gun stopped moving. Vanner surged to his feet, casting the thing away, joy singing through his pattern and ecstasy on his face. He took a step toward what encompassing happiness only he could know, and folded onto the floor with a final thud. 
the life torn from him between one breath and the next. Sean clamped his jaw, locking his cry of protest, of pain in his chest. There was silence. A glance at his captor revealed her to be studying him, head tipped to one side, eyes wide and intent. He drew a breath and another and asked the question as calmly as he could manage. Precisely what was the point of that? She shrugged, very much in the Terran way, dismissing Vanner as if he were so much soiled laundry. He is of no further use to us. The other members of the team would certainly not have granted him his freedom. Save in this same manner, only with much more pain beforehand. You made your point over me by recalling him to ecstasy. It seemed the best I might do for you, my student, who held his oath to free him on that note. She shrugged again, the gesture more fluidly laden this time. Now that you have passed your testing and become therefore my student, I will examine you. It will, as you know, be far less disagreeable if you open your shields and willingly allow me within. But I don't want you within, Sean said, gathering his will and thrusting it at the core of her dense pattern like a knife. I don't like you. I am not your student, and I believe you have bitten off a far bigger piece of Corval than you can reasonably chew. You might save the lives of yourself and your team if you let me go now. She laughed. You must, of course, try. And it was, if you will allow me, a very credible effort. I am impressed by such an effort from a mere healer. Now, we have very little time for pleasantries. My colleagues will be returning with your heir very soon, and they will then wish to see results. In order to save your life, we must proceed. My heir is a child and utterly untrained. Indeed, indeed. I saw how it was with her during your first visit to this establishment. Her naivete will make her a pliant student. However, the lack of even the most basic training makes her less desirable to me as a student than yourself. Trained, talented, and quick-witted, you will be a jewel in the crown of the department's recruitment program. Recruitment? Yes, did your brother not tell you? Well, no matter. Soon you will know for yourself. Open to me. The command voice was augmented with a lash of agony, which he managed to partially turn aside. Well done said Torona Rusk mildly, and snapped again. Open to me. The lash this time was a physical stripe across his forearm, slicing fabric and flesh. Blood welled, the pain quite astonishing. I am Dramleza, little healer. Spare yourself. Open the shields. He threw his whole will into the shields, retreating behind them as much as he was able even as the lash sliced twice in quick succession, and he heard himself cry out. Behind the shields, he turned his attention to the links he shared with Priscilla and with Patty. Torona Rusk was strong. Eventually, she would break his shields. And Patty, Loot had promised to protect Patty. If he managed it, Torona Rusk would not find her through him and by all the gods that might exist, she must not find Priscilla. He broke those links, all of them, even the strongest and most intimate, especially those. So much damage, so quickly, he was hurting her. One more set of links to Priscilla. He cut them as quickly as he could, felt a wave of faintness, the searing blare of headache and shook both away, turning his attention to the web that linked him to Paddy. This would be easier, he told himself. 
Patty herself had no awareness of the bonds. She would not feel the pain of separation. He would. Sean centered himself, feeling his shields shudder under Tarona Rusk's continued attack. Quick, he must be quick, and gods, he must not falter. He extended his will toward the web that bound him to Paddy. Just as they broke from the other side, a surgical slice that severed all at once. Agony flared and was gone, flaming out all in an instant. Sean gathered his wits and his strength and turned his attention to the matter at hand. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of An Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bain intern Jonathan Graubaird for editing help, and the podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz. And a number three blue plate special with the works and extra sauce and supernovas from the End of Time Diner, where it's always Tuesday. Plus grateful bays of starhounds filled with plaudits and huzzas for Emily Butler, Bridget Correa, Dan Hoyt, Maggie Nowakowska, Mona Panette, and Sharon Rice Weber, great spouses of some great Bane authors. Thank you all. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>